Thank you for listening to the Faith Free Lutheran Church Sermon Archive. Today's sermon for the 10th Sunday after Trinity, August 8th, 2021, is preached by Pastor Jason Goodham. If you have questions or comments regarding today's message, please call the church office at 612-824-5527 or visit our website at faithlutheran-aflc.org. Good morning again. Special welcome to those of you who are visiting us this morning. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I would invite you to stand at this time as I read the Old Testament lesson appointed for this Sunday. The sermon text is taken from 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 1 through 8, can be found on page 559 of your pew Bible if you'd like to follow along. Reading in Jesus' name, 1 Kings 19, verses 1 through 8. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord. Take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. Heavenly Father, these are your words, and your word is truth. We pray that this morning you would sanctify us in the truth, that you would convict us of sin in our lives where that is necessary, and that you would comfort and encourage us with the promises of your gospel. In your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, there's no doubt in my mind that you've heard some iteration of this phrase, God won't ever give you more than you can handle. Now, before I tee off on this phrase a little bit, in deference to the Eighth Commandment, we should try to understand that those who usually use a phrase like that are often well-intentioned. Generally, what is meant by that phrase is that you're going to get through whatever it is you're going through. Great. Well, we can maybe appreciate that sentiment, we also have to stop and acknowledge one key point. God repeatedly and constantly gives us more than we can handle. It's not unusual. It happens so regularly in the lives of Christians that a phrase like, God won't ever give you more than you can handle, shouldn't even exist. God gives us more than we can handle because the entire point of the Christian life is that we would depend on Him for everything. We depend on Him for our material needs. That's the point of the first article of the Apostles' Creed, which we just confessed, 
and the fourth petition of the Lord's Prayer, which we'll pray after the sermon. But more importantly, we depend on God for all of our spiritual needs and eternity as well. That's the point of the second and third article of the Apostles' Creed, as well as the fifth, sixth, and seventh petitions of the Lord's Prayer, not to mention the sacraments too. But it just so happens that God giving someone more than he can handle and then teaching that person that he needs to depend on God for his gracious and supernatural provision is exactly what Elijah is experiencing in his life in our Old Testament lesson this morning. So we have to ta- stop and pause, turn our eyes back to 1 Kings 19 to discover what on earth is going on in Elijah's life. Now, if you rewind just one chapter, you'll discover that Elijah is coming down from the spiritual high of all spiritual highs. He's just experienced God's direct, miraculous, and supernatural victory over the forces of evil and idolatry on the top of Mount Carmel. 1 Kings 18 is one of my very most favorite chapters in all of the Old Testament. It's got everything. Drama, action, apologetics, one of the funniest and crassest lines delivered in the entire Bible. It's all there. God steps into human history to intervene on behalf of his people and scores a decisive victory over wicked King Ahab, wicked King Jezebel, and the wicked prophets of Baal, and the other false gods being worshipped in the northern kingdom. Now, I think for us to really understand how amazing this was, Uh, I'm going to ask you to imagine one of two scenarios. And and the first one, if you don't understand what I'm talking about, the second one you will, okay? If you've heard the name Neil deGrasse Tyson, then you're about to understand what I'm talking about here. He is, uh, for those of you who are older and don't know who Neil deGrasse Tyson is, maybe you'll recognize the name Carl Sagan, okay? Carl Sagan uh, was behind the, the documentary, what was the Cosmos? Is that what it was called? Neil deGrasse Tyson is the Carl Sagan of our day. He's a prominent scientist and a, a very aggressive atheist. And, and Neil deGrasse Tyson will go out of his way, literally out of his way, to mock Christianity. Okay? Now, if you, if you can't envision that scenario... All of us, it is likely, has either a family member or a friend or a co-worker or someone who is inclined in that direction. Someone who is stubbornly resistant and opposed to even the existence of the church in Christianity. One of those two situations you can kind of nod your head with, okay? Now imagine... You are standing before either the celebrity atheist of our day du jour or whoever the contact in your life that you're imagining now and this person is just spouting vitriol against you and your faith and and condemning it and mocking it and, and doing whatever he can to do to discredit the faith. 
And in the midst of that, you stand aside and you point at the sky and God performs some definitive miracle that beyond any stretch of the imagination demonstrates that he exists. And I'll leave it at that. We don't need to get into any more specifics because unfortunately I'm not preaching 1 Kings 18, I'm preaching 1 Kings 19. But that's a summary of what happened in 1 Kings 18. And Elijah scores this victory, or God does on his behalf, to the point that all the people at Elijah's command actually wipe out the false prophets. They're executed for leading Israel astray. It's just a decisive victory on God's behalf. And you would think that after something like this, Elijah would be walking on the clouds, would be moving about with such confidence and joy that he would be unstoppable. And maybe for a time he was. But as 1 Kings 18 flips to 1 Kings 19, reality comes crashing back into Elijah's life. Jezebel hears of Elijah's victory and the slaughter of her beloved false prophets, and she makes an oath to take Elijah's life. And in spite of the victory, in spite of the evidence, and in spite of the recent memory of God stepping into human history to act on Elijah's behalf, Elijah becomes overcome with fear. And he literally runs for his life, fleeing deep into the southern kingdom, which by this point was an entirely different country, eventually traveling all the way to the Sinai Peninsula to Mount Horeb. So what happened? What could cause one of the most influential and important figures of the Old Testament? Remember, when Jesus is transfigured, it's Moses and Elijah that show up with him. What would cause this pillar of Scripture to act like this so close to 1 Kings 18. So what we're really looking at this morning is Elijah's struggle. Now there have been several theories in an effort to explain or to label or to even excuse Elijah's behavior here in the first handful of verses of 1 Kings 19. But here's my suggestion, and it more or less lines up with the most common explanation that exists. Elijah let the eyes of his faith lose sight of the Lord because of his recent success. And so what happened on 1 Kings 18 is not that Elijah was dwelling on the Lord's presence in his life, he was dwelling on the outcome. And what this does is it leads Elijah of his relationship with God by his life circumstances. Now this should be something that is absolutely familiar to each and every one of us. 
we all at one time or another, and perhaps frequently, allow ourselves to grow discouraged by our life circumstances in spite of God's demonstrated and repeated provision and victories on our behalf. We all, just like Elijah, lose sight of the object of our faith by our trust in the fleeting nature of success whatever that might be. And this should be no less surprising and disappointing when it happens to us as when it happened to Elijah. Why? Because just like he did for Elijah, God has stepped into human history, intervened for us, and delivered to us personally a great and amazing victory over the forces of evil. Our discouragement and fear and lack of faith always happen in light of the objective reality of Jesus' death and resurrection. Jesus' death and resurrection are historical fact. They're never going away, and they're never not going to exist. And yet, whenever something unfortunate and unexpected happens to us, we more often than not immediately fall into the trap that God has stopped caring about us that God doesn't act on our behalf any longer, that He's abandoned us to judgment. I'll give you two quick examples in my own life of when this happened. All of you should remember this because it is one of my more foolish moments as your pastor, but about four or five years ago, during our annual meeting, I asked the congregation to consider hiring either an associate pastor or a secretary to help with the workload of the church because at that time we were averaging close to 80 people on a Sunday. Things were going well at faith. You know what happened? Three years after that, just three years after that, we averaged our lowest attendance per Sunday since I started here as your pastor. And I was really discouraged about that. I was wondering what we were doing wrong and what I was doing wrong. We lost almost 50% of our regular weekly attendance in a matter of three years. In other denominations, when that happens, the pastor gets fired. And it was on my mind what was going on. And I was discouraged and I was depressed. Even more recently in my life, Esther and I had the opportunity to sell our townhouse, our rental property that we have tried and failed to sell multiple times. And we determined that this summer was our best chance. Well, Two months before we tried to sell it, we had a major water disaster in the townhouse and led big water stain on the ceiling of the lower level that we had to deal with. And then from that point on, every hiccup in the process sent my stress level through the roof. I just was not handling anything well at that point in time. Now, I'm a pastor. I preach every week the gospel to all of you. But in my life, that didn't matter because I, as your pastor, and I imagine just like many of you, get distracted by success or lack thereof. 
I get distracted by what's going on in the right here and right now without thinking about promises like this from Romans. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? To God's promise to care for us, to walk with us through the valley of the shadow of death, and to provide for us, is not based on our performance. We do not derive that from the way life is going right now or for the last 15 minutes. God's promise to care for us is based on the fact that He has already put His Son on the cross in our place, and He has already raised His Son from the dead in order to secure and demonstrate His victory over everything that would overcome and overwhelm us in this life. And yet we repeatedly and frequently lose sight of the Son because of our circumstances. So we find ourselves in the exact same spot as Elijah, a prophet of the Lord who lived over two and a half millennia ago. And so, since we're in that same spot as Elijah, what happens next should be immensely important to us. Because as Elijah is sitting there in the desert, under a broom tree, throwing a tantrum, God acts. And he acts in grace, in mercy, and faithfulness. You see, Elijah was emotionally and spiritually and even physically exhausted. His fear and his discouragement had nearly overwhelmed him. And a day into his flight... He begs the Lord to alleviate him of his ministry, take his life, and end it all. And he collapses under a tree. At his lowest point, when he feels most removed from the location and source of his spiritual victory, God meets him. And God feeds him. And God speaks to him with his word. God has his messenger say to him, arise and eat. And again the next day, arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. Listen to that sentence again, that phrase. The journey is too great for you. Don't tell me that God doesn't give you more than you can handle, because God himself admits it. Scripture commentator Walter A. Meyer hits the nail on the head when he describes what's happening to Elijah here. Elijah was a man of strong faith, but his faith needed further strengthening and refining. And that's it exactly. And that's exactly what you need to hear right now. As your pastor, I know most of you pretty well. I try to visit with you often, and I try to keep up on the events in your lives, although I don't do so perfectly. But even in my familiarity with you, in my desire to know what's going on in your life, I can't know the daily ups and downs, the daily victories and defeats, and the daily emotions that you wrestle with. 
But I do know that each and every one of you go through doubt and defeat and discouragement regularly because I go through it too. It's the human condition. And even as Christians, we can't avoid it or overcome it until eternity. We are often tired. We are regularly discouraged. We are frequently afraid to the point that that fear leads us into the sin of idolatry. That fear replaces our trust in God with our trust in ourselves. And at that point, it feels like we're ready to collapse from exhaustion. But that's why you're here. That's why you church regularly. That's the entire point of you being a part of the body of believers that makes up this congregation. Each and every week you come here and God meets you and he delivers his gifts to you. He speaks to you. He comforts you. He cares for you. He even feeds you. The journey is too great for you. Whatever happened during the last week, whatever happened this morning as you got up and prepared for church, the journey is too great for you. The enemies of the gospel, the enemies of your life, the enemies of God are bent on your destruction. The devil the world, and even your own sinful flesh will not stop until you are overwhelmed and overcome. But he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And it is he who comes to you, who provides for you, who forgives your sins, even your sin of idolatrous fear. And he delivers to you all his gifts. He gently speaks to you and nourishes you with his word. And each and every Sunday, God meets you and speaks to you the exact same words he spoke to Elijah. Dear saints, arise and eat. For without the word of God, the journey is too great for you. But your God is with you, and your God is for you. Amen. And now may the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.